Chapter 3 All history is a lie, and to know it so misrepresented, it would be far better not to know it at all. Vicente Blasco Abanez, The Shadow of the Cathedral, 1919 One day, a Portland Community College catalog comes in the mail. I casually browse classes from creative writing to foreign languages, then scan over the history section. Northwestern history, U.S. history, and history of the Holocaust catch my eye. Credits are cheap and eager for distraction. I enroll in two winter quarter morning courses. The campus pulses with political energy, and soon I'm pulled into local activism. There's always focus groups on sweatshop labor, marches against police brutality, or lectures about Israeli apartheid policies. You can hardly walk from class to the library without getting roped into a giant anti-capitalist puppet-building project. By the end of March 1999, I've saved enough money to quit the aluminum plant and concentrate more on school. My first course spring quarter is History of Western Civilization, with a professor named Dr. Ellsworth. The first day of class, our instructor enters about five minutes late. She carries an old-fashioned leather briefcase and bushy gray hair mushrooms above a cherubic pink face. Her shoulders are wide, draped with a garishly patterned sweater. She sits before us, black stockinged legs spread wide apart beneath a pale yellow skirt. From the briefcase, Dr. Ellsworth removes stacked papers, thumping them onto her desk in an ominous pile. Please pass my syllabus out amongst yourselves. Thick glasses distort her features, and each word tumbles forth through a dense French accent. Students hand the stapled packets down each row, groaning. I take one and leaf through it. Can this really be a 100-level class? Six double-sided pages? The last contains a two-column list of potential subjects for the midterm in-class essay. Number one, discuss the policies of Metternicht. Number 13, analyze the position of Napoleon III toward Italy. Number 22, what did the fall of Bismarck signify in the development of Germany? Make an estimate of his contributions to the country. Dr. Ellsworth smiles at the audible dismay. Her teeth are gray and tightly packed together. You may find my expectations set forth here rather intimidating. Please know that much of what you see is for the benefit of my superiors. I must maintain an appearance of high academic rigor and, of course, ask you all to buy a very expensive textbook. But I say right now, if you haven't purchased the text yet, don't bother. My main assignments will be book reports on period novels. Textbooks present the past as seen by modern-day historians. That is all very well, but to arrive at a clearer picture of bygone eras, I prefer first-hand sources, people who were there. So, instead of listed requirements, you will complete book reports on novels by such authors as Leo Tolstoy, Jane Austen, and Victor Hugo. There, don't you all feel better? I am intrigued, but many of my classmates appear puzzled, and those who have already purchased a 13th edition text mutter with annoyance. Dr. Ellsworth launches immediately into a lecture without notes, summoning endless streams of facts and often risque historical anecdotes from memory. Costume jewelry on wrists and fingers flash beneath the fluorescent tubes, and a large silver crucifix dangles on a chain around her neck. The spectacle is mesmerizing. We cannot look away, as our professor describes with relish Catherine de' Medici's intrigues and the fate of Henry VIII's many wives. Though a brilliant storyteller, Dr. Ellsworth struggles with more mundane activities. 
As I wait for my bus one day after class, a little blue Toyota pulls out of the parking lot and noses directly into traffic on Killingsworth Street. An oncoming delivery truck screeches to a halt. The car begins an agonizingly slow left turn, and another vehicle breaks in the far lane. Burnt rubber fills my nose. Horns bellow and motorists curse as the Toyota inches along, still blocking both directions. It gradually accelerates up to speed, and I spy Dr. Ellsworth behind the wheel. Her head shakes at such unseemly commotion. Some weeks later, we cross paths outside the school library. Justine, she asks, eyes wide. You are the student who wrote a book report on the Marquis de Sade's Justine, correct? I nod. Dr. Ellsworth smiles. Oh, what a delight, but not for the faint of heart. I hesitate openly recommending the Marquis, so it fills me with joy you picked his masterpiece. It has been many years since I read the book myself, but you helped me relive its sheer horror. Thank you. There are others I'm excited about reading, too. Octave Mirbeau's The Torture Garden and J.K. Huysmans' Against Nature. Mirbeau and Huysmans? I adore those two. Uh, now, what is your name, excusez-moi? Ross. Oh, yes. Ross. Her voice transforms the R of my name into a soft W. I would be honored, she says, if you would join me for lunch. That would be very nice, I agree. After the day's lecture, she drives us to Wong's Garden, a Chinese restaurant in the southeast Woodstock neighborhood, while I clench my fists at every near miss of a parked car, approaching bicycle, or nearby pedestrian. We sit in a booth, and the waitress brings menus. She sets down two glasses of water. My professor glares at the one before her, then snatches up a fork and lifts at an ice cube. Do you mind? she asks. I tilt my head. What? Dr. Ellsworth reaches over, fork vibrating unsteadily, and tips the ice into my glass. After two more cubes, water splashes over the rim. I dab it up with a napkin. She frowns. My apologies for the mess. I despise this American obsession with frozen water. It must be sheer poison for one's body. There, perhaps mine will become drinkable soon. So, Ross, have you enjoyed my class so far? I grin. <laughs> you scared everyone at first with that syllabus. Yeah, I like the way we use old novels to learn about different time periods. It's fun for someone like me who reads all the time anyway, but also draws in people ordinarily turned off by textbooks. The lectures are amazing, too. You've really got the dirt on everybody. Dr. Ellsworth's lips stretch into a thin smile. Oh, yes, uh, the foibles of historical characters. I do what I must to focus attention when young people are so easily distracted. When the waitress returns, my professor requests tea. Rings sparkle through steam as her fingers hover over the wide cup. She bobs her large head and beams. Much better. That some people ingest cold fluids is positively barbarous. Now, Ross, from your papers, I gather the impression that you are somewhat of a political activist. Is that correct? Her left eye skewers me directly, but the right drifts, hugely magnified by thick glasses. Its focus angles lazily past my shoulder. I nod. You could say that. I work with a few different crews right now. Plus, there's a big anti-globalization rally downtown next weekend. Think you might show up? My professor smiles indulgently. <laughs> you know, Ross, I admire your enthusiasm. I really do. 
It is wonderful you should be so involved with such causes. But while I agree totally in what you are doing, being so public a rabble rouser is no way to ensure your own survival. She savors her tea. You may think me a hypocrite, but as surely as we sit here today, later this month I plan to lunch with friends who will tell me about the gathering you speak of and complain if the police have not arrested enough troublemakers. Arrest them, I will say? Where are the truncheons and fire hoses? And we will conclude that young people have been coddled far too much and should attend church more. She toys with the silver crucifix. But... Of anyone? Surely you don't believe in religion? I ask. Your lectures on the popes gave me nightmares. And things only got worse once we moved on to the Reformation. It's mystifying to see you wear a cross. You are correct, Dr. Ellsworth responds. I possess absolutely no faith, but as you can observe, care a great deal about social status. Affiliation with the Catholic Church has been... She pauses. In many ways, very beneficial for me. But notwithstanding gratefulness, it would simply be torture to abandon the rituals or never hear mass. Again, you must think me terribly duplicitous. With a clatter of plates, our food arrives. We eat in silence until Dr. Ellsworth spoons up a final mouthful of soup and swallows noisily. She wipes her mouth with a napkin. Well, young horse, I have quite enjoyed your company. Perhaps we may spend time together again sometime soon. 